So many of you are familiar with the story of the Lord of the Rings. I'm sure many of you have either uh, read the books or seen the movies. And you know the overarching story of the Lord of the Rings has to do with a hobbit. His name's Frodo. He's a small, gentle, uh, pure little figure. And he's been given a, a great and mighty task that you see carried out over the course of this massive, massive, long story. And what he is tasked to do is to carry this source of evil and darkness all the way to a horrible land and try to destroy it there. So what he's carrying with him is this ring, this ring of power. And whoever carries this ring has strong and mighty abilities. Uh, One of the ways in which it manifests itself is it turns invisible, whoever wears this thing. And it's extremely tempting to those who are carrying it. They're tempted to to hold on to it, to treasure it, to use it for their own personal gain. And so the reason why Frodo was chosen to carry this ring is because he's a simple creature. Uh, He's a a creature of comfort. Uh, He's seen as being pure and innocent in the eyes of many of the other creatures of Middle-earth. Well, along the way, Frodo and his company, they meet many characters who are tempted by the power of the ring. He meets uh, those of the human race, those uh, of the dwarven race who try to take this ring away from him. He even encounters noble elves and some other wise creatures, sometimes even wizards, who try to take the ring away from from Frodo. Some take it for malicious reasons. Uh, They themselves want to make themselves powerful. But others think that maybe this is too heavy of a burden to carry for Frodo to carry, and so they try to alleviate this from him as well. Well, finally, and I'm not going to give away the end of it, although I'm sure many of you, uh, being you know Anglicans and whatnot, you're very familiar with this story. We tend to nerd out about uh, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis quite a bit in these quarters, don't we? But anyway, as Frodo is, he he goes into the land of Mordor. He climbs Mount Doom itself, and as he's standing and looking into the fires of Mount Doom, in that moment, the temptation of the ring gets to him as well. The promises of its power is too much for him, and he cannot yet bring himself to destroy the ring. Well, again, I'm not going to to give away the very end. My point is that even good and wise Frodo is not able to defeat the sources of darkness. So if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that we're moving through the first chapter of, of 1 Corinthians, and this is the third and final uh, sermon in this series, and I just want to remind you of how similar Corinth of the first century is to restoration here in 2020 in Minneapolis. So the church in Corinth is a lot like us, isn't it? We've been talking a bit about that. So both cities, uh, Corinth and Minneapolis, are large cities. They're cities of prosperity. They have the latest clothing there, the latest technology. They love education in both of these cities and discussing the latest philosophies that seem to be coming down the road. And there's always something to do in Corinth. In fact, I bet if we were to rewind the clock 2,000 years ago, Super Bowl would be happening in Corinth right then and there. It's a fun city to be in. It's a smart city to be in. And the church in Corinth is also very similar to the church that we find ourselves in this morning. It's a young church. The Apostle Paul had planted this church about two or three years ago uh, when he writes this letter. And he's writing to address some problems that come up. Uh, from this early community, 
problems that have, have popped up and, and sought to tear asunder this entire new church. Last week, we looked into the patterns of division that had been popping up at this church and how they had been forming tribes and arguing with one another, grumbling with one another. And today, we're going to be moving through verses 18 through 31, and we're going to be moving through these in three different sections. We're going to be looking at God's wisdom, or we're looking at humans' wisdom, at the foolishness of the cross, and then we'll be looking at our own story. And so my hope today is as we move through this passage, you yourself would fall more in love with Jesus. You would fall in love with the foolishness of God. You would fall more in love with his cross and what was accomplished there on that day long ago. Well, like I said, Corinth is a well-educated city. A lot of uh, master's degrees and PhDs there in, in Corinth. You see, what happened is in Corinth, there were philosophers from all over the Mediterranean who would travel through there. And they would gather in the center of the city and they would stand up and they would teach there and great crowds would come and listen to these various philosophers from, from Rome and from Greece and perhaps even from the Far East. There were Platonists and, and Cynics and Stoics and Epicureans and all these others who you probably learned about in your Philosophy 101 class. And people would come and they would listen to them. And the people of Corinth had been conditioned to appreciate each of these philosophies. They would analyze them. They would compare them to one another. They would see where the, the holes were in their arguments. They would assess them. And they would try to use, um, they would look at these philosophies and they would try to see which of these human wisdoms do we resonate more with? What do we love? What do we want to treasure ourselves? You see, to be in this place in this time meant that you had a master's degree from uh, in global wisdom assessment <laughs> from Corinth University, right? And what had happened is the church in Corinth started to take on some of these similar behaviors and characteristics that had typified the wider culture of Corinth. There in the church, they had taken their masters in wisdom and they had applied it to leaders of the church. They compared the methods and teachings of Paul and Apollos and Peter, and, and even of Jesus. They had picked their own favorites, and they had formed factions within the church and argued with one another. And as Paul sees this, as he hears reports of this, he gets rather upset because what he sees is that the Corinthians, they're becoming more consumed, more um, obsessed with the conversation rather than the content of the gospel. They were more interested in figuring out the various nuances between all the different teachers and whatnot rather than soaking in the substance of the gospel itself. And we do this. We do this now in 2020. We do this all the time. We love to import modern philosophies and methodologies into the church. We do it all the time. You know, as an, agree, or as an Enneagram 4 I really feel that the Sermon on the Mount affects me and my feelings in this sort of way. Oh, well, as a one, I totally see it another way, right? Like, we do this. Or maybe the strengths finder, because, you know, I've been given the strength of responsibility, you know, that means that my job in the church is to do this and that and whatever. You know, like, we love these things. We collect these things. We get together and we talk about these in our life groups and whatever. And there's a place for that. Don't get me wrong. There's a place for these personality assessments and other sort of things. But sometimes we allow these philosophies, these modern methods, to become the primary lens in which we understand the gospel of God. 
That becomes the primary lens through which we soak in the deep mysteries of God. We think that some of the ways in which God has made us and the way in which we know God is through these secondary means that stem from nothing but human wisdom. And this drives Paul absolutely crazy. Paul challenges wisdom itself. He quotes the prophet Isaiah from this, and he says, God destroys the wisdom of the wise. God destroys human wisdom. In verse 20, he says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe, that is the expert in the law? Where is the debater? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. The world does not know God through wisdom. Now that's a striking thing if you think about it. That means that human wisdom cannot be used to understand the mysteries of God. Now, again, don't get me wrong. God gives us minds. He gives some of you brilliant minds, you know, wonderful IQs, the, the self-discipline to research and look into things, and please continue to do that. Study psychology, study the law, study philosophy and art and athletics and economics and business and so on and so on, and science and mathematics. God takes pleasure in you doing that. He's given you gifts and abilities to do that with, with passion, with intelligence. So please do. And some of you have even discovered signposts of who God is through your studies. For some of you, and we've had conversations about this, that's why you're even a Christian, is because as you continue to, to go down these various uh, disciplines and studies, it pointed you towards God. It, it stirred up this hunger that's within you. And you knew that you wanted something more. You knew that, that the questions, the desires, the passions in your life were not being fixed purely by those various disciplines. Because human wisdom by itself is not enough. Human wisdom by itself is not enough. To understand the mysteries of God the depths of God, to understand the love of God, you need the cross. You need the cross, which is foolishness to the world. In order to understand the heart of God and understand to totally conquer sin in your life, to eradicate suffering, you need the cross. All these other disciplines, as beautiful as they are, they're only a piece of the puzzle. You need the cross. You need that centerpiece of it all. So the second movement in this text is the cross. And the cross is foolishness. Paul himself says it. The scriptures say it over and over again. In 20, verse 23, Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews. And folly, that is foolishness to Greeks. Now that word foolish in the Greek is it's kind of a, an interesting word. I don't usually share uh, Greek from the pulpit, but this one's pretty good. Uh, in, in Greek, the word for fool is, is moros. Do you understand like, what that leads to? And it, it's the word from which in English we get the word moron, which there's just kind of a, a silliness, I think, knowing that when, when you use that word, not that you should, name-calling's bad, but people have been calling each other morons for thousands of years. I find that fascinating. <laughs> But anyway, that someone who takes on, who is considered a fool by the, by the scriptures, this is someone who's engaged in ongoing, repeated public scandal. It's someone who doesn't quite get it. And they're not, they're not just impacting themselves, but they're impacting the wider community. It's become a scandal for them. And this is the word. 
as offensive as it is, as scandalous as it is, this is the word that Paul uses to describe the mighty act of God dying upon the cross. He calls it moronic. He calls it foolish. And we're meant to be scandalized by this. We're meant to be outraged by this. In other words, what Paul is saying is that if we were to dream up, if we were to get the world's brightest minds, the best philosophers and lawyers and and politicians and and engineers, if we were to dream up the best way to rescue humanity from sin and darkness and the the clutches of the devil, we never would have dreamed up of the cross. It's beyond human wisdom. It is considered absolute foolishness to the world. So in the first century, the Roman government, as many of you probably know, used the cross to shame criminals. And not just normal, stealing bread kind of criminals. No, the cross was reserved for rebels, for insurrectionists, for the worst of the worst, those who tried to overtake Rome herself. What the soldiers of Rome would do after you were convicted of this is they would nail you to the cross, and as your enthronement, you would be lifted high upon that. For all of your rebellious subjects to look at you, to see what your kingdom, to see what your movement had amounted to, being naked, hang, uh, nailed to a cross. For the Romans, the cross was torturous mockery. And for the Jews, it was just as bad. According to Jewish law, if you hung upon a tree, you were considered cursed. That comes straight from the Levitical law. Now, it's not the act in and of itself of being hung on a tree which cursed you. It's much further than that. Whatever it is that you had done was so despicable, so shameful to the entire community that it needed to be punished in a public way as a warning to others. When someone was hung upon the tree in Jewish culture, it was a way of saying, we curse you and so does God. You are not in this community any longer. So what is is not only foolish but offensive to both Gentiles and Jews, well, this is the wisdom of God. You see, Jesus of Nazareth, God incarnate, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, he himself, the savior of the world, is shamed, is mocked, is betrayed, is stripped and beaten, and he is nailed upon a cross, considered accursed, considered abandoned by his own people, the Jews, And why is this? For the salvation of the world. This was and is and forever will be the wisdom of God in its glory. So why does this not sit well with us? Why does this make us a little squeamish or queasy at times? Why is it that God's master plan for the redemption of the entire human race, for conquering sin and darkness, is so uncomfortable for us? I think we could spend the rest of the day just talking about various reasons why. But I think when it comes to to problem solving, when it comes to eradicating suffering, we want the answers to come from within ourselves. We want to own our own rescue plan. We want to be responsible for taking care of our own problems. Thank you very much. And we're not necessarily comfortable with the idea of someone else stepping into our world, breaking into our lives in order to fix it all. No, in fact, we want the answer to salvation to come from within. We want to figure it out. We want to be the wise one. We want to be the self-made man or the self-made woman. We want to have the patents with our names on it. (laughs) We want our LinkedIn profiles to have a lot of accolades and thumbs up and, and 
whatever else people use to affirm each other on LinkedIn. Like, we want all of that. <laughs> like, we want to be like that hobbit who's been tasked with, with riding until the ends of the world in order to eradicate darkness because we think that we're pure enough to do it. We think that we're wise enough to do it, that we're smart enough to do it. We want to be the one who solves suffering. And that's the message of like every modern Disney movie these days. Like, sorry, I am going to pick on Disney. But seriously, like every Disney movie these days is like, well, oh, there's suffering in your land. Just go on a long journey, you know, figure these things out. And then, oh my gosh, you're the fifth element. It's you. It's inside of you. You, you, you. Yay, no more suffering now that you've realized who you are. And we hear that and we're like, that's totally right. Like, I'm the answer to all the suffering that's going on. And like, we don't like being told that, no, we're actually the problem. Like, we're the one who needs to, to deal with, well, we're not capable of dealing with the sin and the darkness that's going on in our own lives. The truth is, is that we need something outside of ourselves to save ourselves. And that's the cross. And that is the habit of God. That's why, he, that's why we have thousands of years of Old Testament history. This is what God is teaching his people. He's setting the stage for the way in which he's going to reconcile the entire human race. In Genesis, Adam and Eve, they disobey God by eating the forbidden fruit. Well, God sacrifices an animal in order to make clothing for them. Through that sacrifice, God covers their shame. God gives them protection. And then later, Abraham is, is given a test to offer up his son, And seeing his faith, God provides a ram for the sacrifice. When his people are enslaved by the Egyptians, do they rescue themselves? Do they muster up enough of a strong rebellion to get out of there? No, it's God who brings judgment upon the Egyptians. And it's God who protects his own people by giving them means of of understanding sacrifice as a way for, for the judgment to pass over them. It's God who sets his people free. And through his prophet Isaiah, God says, I will send to you a Messiah. He will, be your, he will be a servant. And by his stripes, you will be healed. Over and over and over again. It's God himself who deals with the sin and suffering and slavery that is plaguing this world and has been plaguing his, this world. It's Jesus Christ, the one who knew no sin, who became sin on our behalf. When we were faithless, he was faithful. When we were enslaved to sin, he saved us. When we were rebels, he rebuilds. When we spew forth violence over and over again, he's the one who takes it upon himself and offers to us peace. At the cross, God did what we ourselves were incapable of. God came down and absorbed it all. That is the power of the cross, brothers and sisters. And so thirdly, what Paul does in this passage is he, he reminds the Corinthians where they came from. He tells them what their story is, and he says, don't you forget your story. Paul knows this community well. He's the one who went there and labored and planted the church. He knows their stories. He knows their family of origins. He knows what sort of pagan practices they were wrapped up in and consumed by. He knew the guilt that was on their shoulders. And as a pastor... In a gentle way, he, he reminds them of that stuff. And he doesn't use flowery language to do so. He says, not many of you were wise or powerful or of any important families, but that's kind of the way God works. 
God chooses what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what's weak in the world to shame the strong. Paul is saying to them, let's not kid ourselves here. We're not the movers and shakers of Corinth. Don't forget your story, Paul says. Now, my biological father, he made a lot of really bad mistakes, we could just say. And I won't bore you with all the details of that, but there were some bad business decisions in his past. There was some drug use in his past. There were some, some uh, demons that were just on his back before he finally just checked out of life entirely. But thanks be to God that Jesus Christ got a hold of me. Christ, in the midst of all that mess, Christ made himself known to me. And he gave me a new family. Both literally, I got an awesome adoptive father who took me in, but also I gained the church. I saw what the family of God is supposed to be like. I saw parents uh, in our church who just opened their doors to us. It was, it was the kind of youth group where people were just you know, in and out of each other's homes all the time, and I knew what love was. I could experience that. I saw that. I saw the power of the gospel at work showing me what family and what redemption and what love really is. I knew that in the church I had a home. And I don't know where I would be without Jesus Christ. So how about you? What's your story? Maybe it's, it's dramatic. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's, it was a subtle gradual coming to Christ. But I hope you know. I hope you have an imagination to know where you would be without him. Because the more that we grapple with that, the more gr- grateful we are for the power of the cross. So don't forget the cross. When he takes the broken shards of our life, and restores them back to vibrancy. I love this pottery that we have up here. Have you guys ever taken a look at this? These are broken. This is a broken pot. Jessica Preston's not here. She'd be utterly horrified if I pointed her out right now. But these are broken pieces of pottery that have been pieced back together with golden uh, glue or ceramics. I'm not using the right terms, but you get the point. Like it's something that's broken that has been pieced back together to be something that is even more beautiful and has more purpose than the way in which it was originally intent. And that's what God does. That's through the power of the cross. That's what he does with you and I. I hope when you see these beautiful pieces, you're reminded of us. That's what he does. He takes our broken lives and turns them into beautiful displays of his character and who he is. Well, the Bible doesn't just remind us of where we've been, but Paul here reminds us of where we are now. And in verse 30, he tells us, you are in Christ. You are in Christ the wisdom of Christ. You are there. You are within him. You are in his righteousness. You are in his redemption. You are in Christ. You, in him, you've been sanctified and redeemed. And that is what it, you are. Our location is in Christ. So in a few moments, we're going to be coming to the table. And that is exactly what the message of the table is about. The Bible says that as often as you eat this bread and drink this wine, we proclaim the death of Christ. In other words, we proclaim Christ crucified every time we come to this table. His body broken for you. His blood poured out for you. So when you come up to the table today, may you participate in Christ. May you know that you are grafted into him and that through the Holy Spirit, you have the righteousness of Christ. He is with you. His peace is with you. His joy is with you. And may you also participate in his life. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the cross. Lord, by it you have secured the salvation of the world. 
Lord, thank you for rescuing us. That when we were violent and squabbling with each other in our rebellious ways, Lord, you came down. And by your death and resurrection, you conquered sin and death itself. Lord, we love you and we look forward to the day in which you will complete all of your work. You will make all things new. And we love you, Lord. It's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen.